Welcome to In the Landscape, a podcast on all things landscape design and care related with your hosts, Kate and Charles Sadler. And we're back in studio for another episode of In the Landscape. We're here for another week's worth of information about landscape design, landscape care, and travel, <laughs> art, aesthetics, That's right. horticulture, all those things. We love it. <laughs> and we love you, the listener. We are so grateful that you're tuning in. We hope you subscribe and listen, rate, review. We're open to all of it. And we're especially excited to hear from our listeners and get feedback and questions, which is actually going to be the focus of today's episode. I am Kate Sadler, your host, and I'm here with my co-host, Charles Sadler. Hi, Charles. Hello. Hello. Happy to be here. Good. Yes. So it might sound funny, but it is actually a genuine thrill to get into the studio and discuss a topic, research it, go back and forth about what we think will be interesting, and then Mm -hmm. present it here into microphones. I mean, there's no live audience. We're just sort of like... (laughs) putting this out there. And then, of course, we are aware of the downloads and we're always excited to see that every week an episode goes out and every week someone listens. (laughs) That's right. And it's not just us. Yeah, the country. It's almost all 50 states now. That's exciting. And it's probably about 50 countries. It more or less keeps track. At some point, we will run out of U.S. states. (laughs) (laughs) It's really wonderful. And we are... Based in the United States, we have offices in New York and Texas for our landscape design company, King Garden. But we're so keenly interested in landscapes around the world. And so although a lot of our discussion will focus on the regions we're familiar with, we're always excited to get listener feedback from other parts of the world. We're we're certainly grateful if you're listening. And even if we haven't been able to cover your climate specifically or your topography, we're really glad you're listening. I just want to put that out there. And there's differences like Fahrenheit, Celsius. Oh, I know. Thank you for bearing with us. (laughs) There's Northern Hemisphere, Southern Hemisphere. So I guess there's some translation that can be, as as a listener's listening. Yeah. It's a big, big, beautiful world. And we're really, I mean, just in love with landscapes everywhere. And we see you. We're so grateful that you're listening. and, And thank you for that. So I, maybe I'm gushing about our listeners because today's episode is inspired by listener questions. Mm-hmm. And it's great to have gotten kind of a critical mass of questions. We feel we can do an episode around them. And the good news is that we know at least someone somewhere really wanted an answer to this. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> if we're not just going on and on about something no one's interested in, we, we hope that this will be helpful. And Charles, you get questions all the time. I mean, not just from listeners to our podcast, but you sometimes get questions by email to our company. We've gotten questions on uh, social media. Right, there's various platforms where I participate in, and there's like open source where people ask questions, answer questions. Even now that we're spending more time in Texas, I use some of the forums. I mean, Facebook is one, and there's many others where, uh, like for plant identification, you know, it's so it's you're out taking a hike or a walk, and you see a plant you're not familiar with, and it's not. It might not be a cultivated plant, mm-hmm. it might be a wild plant, a native, it could be a, like an exotic, I'm using that myself. And then <laughs> it just makes you closer, you know, people are, are very generous in, in, in their responses. Yes, I'm working on my doctorate and 
I know from experience that it's not that I need to have the answer to every question Mm -hmm. in my field, or even if I'm an expert, it's really a great idea to touch base with the rest of the field and do a little bit of research about what's been written lately, who knows what that may supplement my information to somebody. So sometimes the role of an expert is just to do the research and synthesize it and then present it in a way that is digestible or understandable for the person who's asked. But we don't mean to suggest that we know everything with (laughs) encyclopedic knowledge and we can just rattle it off. Actually, a lot of research goes into every episode and then every time you answer a question. I like to confirm, I mean, folks that are experts on a specific subject, like there's some subjects that I have a, a lot of knowledge on. I guess the term would be Someone that is an expert that's focused on a specific area could be, they could miss something that's obvious. Mm. Or someone that's in a related field, they could say, well, if you considered this, mm-hmm. which I, so I, I love running things by other professionals, a garden community, and they might say something that's obvious. And I, in turn, could do that for them. Yeah. Well, and we're in a field, I guess this is true for life in general, where things are always changing. And so maybe... If we'd had a podcast (laughs) or an old time radio show back in the, I don't know, 30s, perhaps boxwood in Europe would have been in better condition than it is. Um, And so our responses would be different. And of course, Mm -hmm. we use a lot of boxwood here in the United States, uh, a lot of hybrids or different species, and it doesn't always translate to the gardens there successfully. I mean, some gardens, like in in Greenwich, Connecticut, that's a big hub where there's a lot of beautiful gardens. I mean, some of those estates are would be similar to England, where the very where the the plants are a hundred years old or more. They may have had English dwarf boxwood that's particularly susceptible to blight, where they're they're now substituting like a Japanese holly. Maybe that's no coincidence. Some of the older parts of the U.S. more or less mimic some of the old world, some of of Europe, and so the problems are similar. Mm, interesting. And, and some of the solutions are similar. So we'll jump in here. There are a couple of categories that seem to be well represented. I would say uh, fruit trees and the pruning of them in particular. Hydrangeas is almost a topic unto itself. Right. (laughs) That classic question, why don't my hydrangeas bloom? (laughs) Yeah, we'll get to that. Um, A few planting questions. And in fact, one of the themes that we observed as a result of putting together this episode is the question of timing. All right. In the landscape. And mm-hmm. I think what we'll do is put together an episode all about the landscape calendar. As you mentioned, there are short seasons that we're readily aware of, and then there are even longer growing seasons, and even the life cycle of a garden will be something we'd like to talk oh, about right. yeah, in a future point. episode. So if some of the timings don't satisfy your question of timing, we will try to get around to kind of the philosophy and awareness of the Mm -hmm. the garden (laughs) calendar and how to plan for that. All right. So let's jump in here. The first question we have for you, Charles, is about an apple tree. It's about two years old. And our questioner is saying here that they cut a lower branch and then three came back. Oh, right. Okay. So, and this, and this, I did see a photo up too. Can you describe what you saw? So it was a smaller tree probably was like in a container from a local nursery it's on or even mail order so the trunk i would say was smaller than the thumb so the smallest would probably be about the size of your pinky or pointer finger you know roughly this started off at that size so a tree that size a fruit tree it doesn't yet have 
its mature architecture. So the branches, it's in a small container, and they have branches almost right close to the ground. And so over about the first three to five years, it'll need pruning more or less to set up its mature architecture. And so this photo I saw, let's say the plant was, a, I'm going to guess, about four feet tall. And so the branch is almost all the way to the ground. So generally with a fruit tree, those lower branches would want to be removed. And a fruit tree, its mature size, it would generally be at least five feet tall. And that would be maybe a dwarf or semi-dwarf that you kept smaller. So the lower branches, you would want to pick and choose. If the branches are, are radiating, radiating off the trunk in like what's called like a whirl, more or less. So each side of the tree has branches coming off and they're at different heights. So you'd want to pick and choose, depending how dense they are. You'd want air and sunlight between all those branches. So depending how close they are, some of those might need to be removed. So if you cut a lower branch with the idea that it was in the wrong place or you didn't want it, fruit trees, they really respond to pruning. So where you prune, it may put out new growth. Where you didn't, It's not where you wanted it to begin with, now you have more new growth. I mean, that would be an example. If you only prune in one place, the plant may send all its energy to that spot. So when pruning a fruit tree, doing an overall shaping can make sense so that the plant is responding by putting out some new growth throughout the plant. That's really specific and helpful. So would that translate to any other trees that you might prune, or is that really a fruit tree problem? No, the fruit trees, I guess their response to pruning is more exaggerated. But it's that same principle would really hold true with, with a lot of plants. I'm trying to remember if we mentioned this in the pruning episode in particular, but pruning does stimulate growth. Right, so you have to really think carefully of where you prune, you could be getting more growth there. Mm-hmm. So it's not that it's just subtractive. So pruning, the act of it is subtractive. You're taking something away, but it can be additive also. So you can do that intentionally and say, I'm going to going to thin this area, but knowing that removing something, it can cause more growth. So if it's, let's say, like a shade tree and you take off a branch that is growing into your house, the tree may keep putting out shoots there. And you might have to repeatedly remove those. And then eventually the plant, the vigor of the other areas will increase. It might be for several years you're getting shoots in that same spot where you, where you removed a branch. So it takes a while for the plant to get the message. Right. <laughs> no, we do not want branches here. We're going to fight you on that. And also a helpful reminder is one of the principles of our practice that, you know, the plants have an agenda too. They are going to persist in that agenda unless you help direct them, help guide them in another way that's sustainable. All right. So we have another fruit tree question. This time it's about figs. And I think this is the first summer our listener got the fig tree. They were told not to prune for three years. Is that good advice? Right. You know, we look up, there was a source, I think it was Wilson Brothers mm-hmm. Nursery or Wilson Brothers Growers. Now we can add a link to it so that we can give the exact URL. Oh, I've got it here. It's wilsonbrosgardens.com. So- right. And that was like a, I found that when I suggest something, it's I've sort of, qualified it that looks like reasonably good information mm. it's good information a reasonable mm. source is that local to the united states though yes yeah okay. but so. it would pretty much translate i mean it's oh. as long as the climate it, there could be places in the world that has similar climate i think that nursery's in georgia so there'd be places in the world 
I'm looking at my USDA hardiness zone. So it looks like Georgia's, it's like zone eight and nine. So there'll be many places in the world that would have that similar climate. So the fig tree, so let's see. When you read about a fig, you can do nothing. I mean, there are an apple tree, like a full-size apple tree, if you did nothing, the fruit is going to be maybe 20 feet. It's going to be hard to reach. It's going to be at the top of the tree. So there are some plants that you really need to prune if it's a full size. Like there are, now there are dwarf apple trees where it's more or less like a bush, where those with a fig tree, it goes into detail about depending on the climate. So there's, if you're in the upper US, fig trees might not survive the winter. There's a region more or less like the, the middle of the US where they're marginally hardy. So which, what marginally hardy means, it might a very cold winter, there might be some dieback. It might die back to the ground, but the roots are still alive and it puts out new shoots. So pruning a fig tree, if you're in a temperate climate, where it's just where you experience a cold winter, and that would be the same throughout the world, the fig is only going to really get to be a shrub. You could do some pruning, it's similar to the apple tree, which will help establish this nice solid architecture. So with most of the fruiting plants, you think of a candelabra. So you want to encourage this, the branches that reach outward, like open arms. So there's going to be plenty of sunlight on those branches. They're not crossing or rubbing, that they're reaching outward. If they get very long or leggy, they could break. So in some cases, you'd reduce the length some. And so that's, it's encouraging strong architecture. So it might reduce the fruit yield some. And when you read about figs and other plants, it says this type of structural pruning, it's not going to have much of an impact on, on the fruit yield unless you really did severe pruning. So the fear that, oh, I'm not going to get fruit. With most of these young plants, there's not that much fruit anyway. So the pruning, it's setting up a positive architecture. So any listeners who want to learn more about fruit trees, we have the bearing fruit episode back in our catalog may approach that again because we did talk mostly about fruit trees that were required a dormant season, so cold, colder oh. climate fruit trees. Right. And so we may come back to that as a topic. So do let us know if you have anything specific in mind, how to you grow know, kumquats or <laughs> kiwis. Uh, we'd have to do some research there, I'm sure. But uh, well, you know, I didn't, I forgot to mention too, with a fig tree, if you're in a warmer climate, so that'd be like the southern U.S., or other parts of the world where you're like in the subtropics or the tropics, then you have, more, you have a bit of a choice. The, f- the fig, you could train it to, to stay smaller or it'll become a tree. And so in that case, the same, you could do some pruning. It's not a pruning intensive plant and it can be trained in S- as espalier. It's popular to do that too, where it's grown flat against a wall or a fence. So the fig sounds like a, it might be good for a wider range. Than right. I mean, it's really popular throughout the world, many cultures. And historically, too, quite an important plant. And it can be grown in a pot. If you had a greenhouse, it could be brought in in a cold climate. The next question we have here is not about a fruit tree, but we're still on the topic of trees. And uh, someone had an evergreen tree pruned, and unfortunately, the job wasn't that great. I think they, if you've heard me talk about pruning, I talk about the cut that sort of across the middle of the branch that you see sometimes. They haven't gone back to the branch collar, unfortunately, for whatever reason. And it sounds like our listener here had that happen. And the question is, is it going to grow back in a a strange way? 
with most of these, I see there's photos that are, you know, that are included in the question. So it's often the case, the homeowner or the client has this, this issue they want to address. I want this branch is not, is in the way. I want this removed. So sometimes there's very literal problem solving. It's the branch is cut off. It's no longer in the way. If that was like, that looked like the issue, but the, the job wasn't really done. It wasn't completed. <laughs> and there was a pretty large stump. Like we talked about in other episodes, so pruning, so not leaving a stump of that limb, cutting it back to the trunk is really important. That with some species, it would sprout new growth there. And so that's unsustainable because you have this awkward cut. There could be a new shoot and that is probably not going to be a a stable junction. And so it's not going to be healthy architecture and it could break or it would just rot. And that's not good either. And also it's a place for disease and insects to get in. Can you go back and make like finish the cut, mm-hmm. hire someone to come through and like make sure it's taken all the way back to right. the branch collar? Right, like a flush cut, you know, back to the trunk. So that's just a reminder that an ISA certified arborist, International Society of Arboriculture, someone that is a member of that is going to be aware of these practices, you know, the proper pruning. You don't necessarily get what you pay for. Somebody could be charging the same price, but not have the education or the knowledge. As weather gets more extreme, maybe wetter, drier, hotter, colder, there are more plant healthcare issues. And so the timing of some plants, it's, it is quite important that they can get a disease or a blight or a, an insect if they're pruned at the, at the wrong time of year. So there's someone that's up on that, that's getting, you know, the journal, like all the journals I read and all the communities I'm part of, that's, it pays off. <laughs> <laughs> Good to know. That is an important consideration. And uh, not even something one might be aware of. I think when I think it's the untrained plant person in this family of timing, I am thinking basically of, of hot and cold. Is it winter? And my sense would be that you don't do things when it's cold because I wouldn't want to be out. I wouldn't want to have, a, <laughs> I wouldn't want to be pruned in the winter, but that may not be correct because it's the dormant season. So so yeah, stay tuned if you if you are interested about timing because that is such a big question that we get and uh, we'll be looking at that. And you know, I might mention now also because we do want people to have good resources for finding this information. Of course, we've mentioned we do a lot of research. We are developing an online series of courses that will cover questions like this. And one of them will be, for example, one of the first ones we'll launch will be on soil and how to have healthy soil. What, what is soil? How does it support our plants? Um, we're going to produce some classes on pruning and timing may, may also enter into that. So you can certainly visit our website, kinggardeninc.com. Look for that to be launched soon. We'll try to uh, mention the specific date once we get a little bit closer to launching that officially. But we want to invite people into our community of information Mm -hmm. and try to provide the information we can. So if you want to go more in depth, be sure to check that out or or check out some of the other episodes that we have. And we'll, we'll try to get that information to you. Very good. Next topic, hydrangeas. And <laughs> this is a big one because they are, of course, gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous plants. I don't think until I met you, I had any idea quite how many species of hydrangea there were or quite the variety. So that's exciting. So we have a few questions here. The first of which is, do hydrangeas need shade? Uh, so that like, again, goes back to the, to the US, well, like depending where you're on the world, 
but a, a plant hardiness zone map. Here it's the USDA, US Department of Agriculture. There are some of the big categories of hydrangeas. And there, there would be the macrophilia, which is big leaf. So it's, it's like a fleshy, large leaf. And those are the globe-shaped traditional hydrangea, which I mean, I, I would perceive as traditional hydrangea flowers, like which is a globe. Depending on the soil, they're often blue or they could be pink. So those, the traditional sort of straight species of that, if there's a very cold winter, those buds are set in the previous year. So if it's flowering in July, the buds for the next July are developing in that July. If it's a very cold winter, if you're in the, the upper half of the U.S., or in, which would include you know, Ontario, British Columbia, would be similar to like the upper, upper Midwest, those buds could be killed by a frost. So that traditional large-leaf hydrangea, that's it. It's those buds are developed in July for the next July, and if those buds are killed, you probably aren't going to get any flowers. So this is really not so much to do with shade, but the fact that occasionally people have hydrangeas they don't bloom. Right. And we're, you know, addressing kind of like why would that be? And so it's all sort of like a long way of getting into the like the how the climate's important. So that plant, if you're in the southern US, it could grow in the sun, but it it, it often needs some shade. So there's the macrophilia. So that one it's susceptible, but it might not flower. You know, if it's very shady, like if you're in the upper U.S. and that plant is in the shade, it might not flower. If it's in the southern U.S., it might burn. <laughs> mm, okay. So the macrophylla, that's a large category. The other category, one of the other large categories is the paniculata. So that sounds like a big word, but that's a larger woodier shrub generally. And so a panicle is, is a cone of flowers. And so like a very popular one people might know is limelight. That's a popular one currently where it's like a lime-ish cone. It turns white and then it turns a pink-ish, dusty pink in the fall. So that is more versatile. That can grow in this, you know, in the southern U.S. That would have trouble once you get into south of Georgia Southern Florida, the tip of Texas, it's too hot. And there'd be places where it'd be too hot for that. But that's quite versatile. So that could grow in the sun, in the shade. Now, if it's really dark shade, that might not flower too. And that one, the buds, that one, more or less, it flowers on on new growth. So you could prune it. The pruning doesn't generally affect its flowering. Our... Instagram, King Garden Inc. on Instagram actually has a lot of hydrangea photos mm-hmm. just because it photographs well and it is one of our favorites. And we did it in our garden in New York have the panicle style oh, right. hydrangeas planted. My younger sister lives out just east of Portland and she has a hydrangea. I think it's the macrophilia that oh, you right. described because they are the globe shaped blooms and her her plant just is the most stunning, deep royal blue. Like so a lapis lazuli. Yeah, it's stunning. <laughs> so there's a there's a picture of that early, early on in our Instagram feed. Again, King Garden Inc., if you want to take a look at that. And unfortunately, if you take a cutting of that plant and try to plant it somewhere else, it does not have that color. And mm-hmm. we think it's because of that possibly volcanic soil that you have out oh, there. Oh, I would watch in Oregon. Mountain range, uh, Mount Hood is right there in the distance. And 
And so that is very special soil, especially for hydrangeas, unfortunately not replicable everywhere necessarily. So with hydrangeas, there's like a reblooming series of them, endless summer, and there's many other ones. So those look like the macrophilia. I mean, they're like a, they're related to it. And so those will, to some extent, flower on new growth. So even if there's a frost or in the southern U.S., they would need a fair amount of shade. And then in the very far south, it would be too hot. But so the endless summer series. And then there's, there's lace cap hydrangeas, which the endless summer has some of those in it. And so those are like a midsize where, and depending really if you're on Martha's Vineyard, Nantucket, some of the macrophilia can get to be six, seven feet tall, where in other parts of, if you're in like upper New York, it might only get to like three feet tall. <laughs> it's, it's a short growing season in the South. It can, and the limelight, that can get very, I can get to be 12 feet tall. Our next question, and this is good timing for it here in the Northern Hemisphere as we come into fall. Why do we plant bulbs in the, the fall and not in the spring? Okay, good question. The time to plant bulbs is when you're sort of in the middle of the fall, you know, more or less. So it's, it's not going to get hot. Like September would be in, unless you're in the upper, upper Midwest or in Maine, you want to plant it more or less like the middle of the fall, give or take. So they're not going to be long periods of rain, like months and months of rain where planting them early in the fall, it could be a wet fall and they could rot. You want to plant it ahead of the ground freezing well ahead of that. And then following the depth, following the depth suggestions, and it varies quite a bit for different types of bulbs. And some of them, I'm going to guess, could be as deep as like six or eight inches. Others are less. And so they need to get, I don't know if established is quite the right word, but they need to be in the ground in the fall. And then as I understand it, it's they're sensitive to the temperature of the soil. And so they, they, they wake up when the spring soil uh, warms up. So it, it would be pretty hard to get them planted in time. The ground in the spring is often muddy. There'd be snow still. There's some that come up when there's still snow. So those are a plant, a plant before the winter, and then they come up in the spring. So that timing is quite important. Another question off the topic of bulbs and specific timing, actually. Now we're into a question about planting, planting a north side courtyard for essentially what the listener is getting at is that it's shady pretty much all the time. All the right. Deep shade. It sounded that it might be like, a, like an urban condition. Where or the buildings are tall enough that they're casting a shadow pretty much all the time, which can be cozy for sure, but mm-hmm. would be a challenge for planting, I would imagine. So what are your suggestions there? Well, there, so the more challenging, I mean, there's that principle like to know when to surrender. <laughs> so there's a time to, to be persistent, and then there's a time to try a different approach. So in a condition that's really shady, there's really almost like no direct sun, to try a different approach. And so that could be to create a welcoming outdoor room, outdoor space. So there are some tricks would be creating or having architectural elements. So that could be trellis, or more or less you're creating this room out of lattice or trellises. So that would give the sense of space. It's it's, it would feel comfortable with a human scale. I mean, if you're in a courtyard it, with tall buildings, it could feel uncomfortable. That's a scale is not a human scale. It's a institutional, you know, like a many-story building. So having elements 
that are compatible with the human scale. So that could be architectural elements. You know, some of the old Dutch gardens, when our tulips were so revered in the past, they would have mirrors in the back of the tulip bed to make it feel like there were more tulips, <laughs> you know, back in the, the uh, tulipomania with that craze. So mirrors, whether it's an indoor space and there's a dark part of your house, having a mirror will bring light to it. That'd be the same with an outdoor space. And mirrors or reflective materials could be part of a trellis. Um, I've even seen that where, imagine an open trellis. So instead of seeing through it, it's backed with a mirror. So you're this still the sense of a trellis, but it's reflecting light. That light is important too. I mean, I love cafe lights or those mm. white strands of Christmas lights so much that I almost appreciate a darkened space <laughs> so oh, that you can right. have those. So when we, when I lived in Manhattan and you know, if there's an outdoor patio or something, and again, very shady, but as long as you have those like cafe lights going, it's totally cozy and really nice. That doesn't speak to the planting necessarily, but it definitely makes it a welcoming space. Well, that's a great point. Yeah, lighting, I mean, artificial lighting can be so welcoming. It can make a space, the darkness can be an asset because then it allows for light. So thoughtful lighting, I mean, even just decorating an outdoor room like you would an indoor room. There are outdoor waterproof lamps that feel very homey. Or if it's just used seasonally, maybe it can even be an outdoor lamp. Having the elements that are outdoors could be lighter colors. So a bright white, that might be too stark, but it could be a light gray, a light green. What's like that, that Asian term for light green is a celadon. So having, there are light, French blues. So it's something that really evokes a mood. Let's see. Uh, and light colors almost glow in the low light. There's, it, mm. They take on this extra sort of almost ethereal quality. We've seen that with plants that have sort of variegation in the low light, as well as the furniture that you're talking about. So it's almost, again, a way of appreciating the darkness, as it were, uh. by introducing these elements, as you're suggesting, that that then take on an extra special quality and make it an asset to have that low light. Yeah, that's a really good point. That there's a contrast. White on white, you can't see anything. You can make it an asset. Other points I made, light colors, variegated plants. There's a multitude of variegated. So in the shade, more or less the foliage of the plant, the leaves, the bark, if there's berries, there's those different elements that could, instead of flowers, the the shade plants may have flowers. They're not often as conspicuous or as showy or as long-lived. So the, like a popular one is, it's called an Akuba, Akuba japonica, which in, in the shade, it's often dry too. But like in a courtyard garden, might not get much rain or much sun. So it's not just a plant that can handle the shade, but a plant that, that can also handle a dry condition. So Akuba is one that I love. I mean, that. is it akin to having indoor plants that they just require a little bit of extra attention? They're not, they may be not, <laughs> many of us have ex had experience, well, maybe not our listeners in particular, but ma many people have had experience with the outdoor plant that unless you really tend to it carefully is just, you know, dead within a couple of weeks. So mm -hmm. when it's a challenging site, right? You might need some extra TLC to really check on it regularly, water it. The scale of the leaf. So if it's an area where it's darker than you'd like. There's not a lot of living plants. Having something really bold with large, dramatic foliage, that could really, my suggestion would be to go a little overboard. 
It's a little more than you think you need. And there are plants like hostas have very large leaves, some of them, Akuba. There's a popular grass, Hakanakloa, that can handle some shit, can handle lots of shade. It's deer tolerant. That's why it's off. It's popular and like in, in the US. And of course, you've pointed out before that there are, I mean, there are shady environments. So there are plenty of plants, like the understory of the tropics. This is why house plants are often tropical plants because oh, right. of this. And so I can imagine that if you have the courtyard and you're not in the tropics, maybe they're not going to survive the winter outside. So I could, I could envision kind of like a, that this might be a, con- a good space for a container garden. Very good that point. A lot of these species you, you may want to have in things that you could bring inside during the winter, which frankly, <laughs> if it's a cold and snowy winter, might liven up the then mm-hmm. your indoor space as well. Right. Having uh, like we I think we discussed that in our sort of in our planning meeting, having house plants would be if the, if the space really cannot tolerate if the plants really are not surviving house plants, which might be a, like you said a tropical understory plant which can handle very deep shade, like you see it in an office setting or a doctor's office, where it's like, how could that survive? There's no natural light, but yet it does. And so again, thinking bold, large containers, so there's plenty of moisture, not too large that you can't move it though. (laughs) And the containers could be coordinated. So what's often popular to do is having several different size containers, but there's some theme, whether it's the style of the container or the color is unifying. So it feels cohesive. Anything else about the shady plants? Because we have one more topic we want to get to before we end the episode. I think that covers it. There's lots of great online resources and we can, we can always answer more questions. Great. Now, if you have a successful shade garden that you want to share with us, we welcome photos and further questions. You can always reach out to us by email at connectkinggardeninc.com. We are on Facebook and Twitter under our podcast name. So you can find us on Facebook under In the Landscape. And then on Twitter, we are at In underscore Landscape. So follow us there. And it's just a nice addition to the podcast because we're talking about this visual space so mm-hmm. so frequently. Like, what does, you know, what does this pruning cut look like? What does this plant look like? And so we invite you to join us on social media in order to see what we're talking about. Right. And give us, <laughs> connect with us and join in the conversation. It mm-hmm. can be a really nice opportunity there. I think the final question for today's uh, listener generated questions will be the planning a home renovation. What do I do to preserve my plants? Of course, I think we'll continue to do episodes like these as we get questions. We'll just sort of bundle them together. We've obviously been all over the map here, and we do like to do those episodes that are longer, that really feature a topic. And some of these are rich enough that we may come back and do more. But again, send us those questions, and we look forward to hearing from you. So you're planning a home renovation. You have plants that you'd like to keep in good shape. How do we, how do we, what do we need to be mindful of as that renovation is undertaken? Okay, that often comes up. I mean, in properties that we have an ongoing relationship with the owners, the stakeholders of the property, whoever that might be, having consulting your landscape professional, designer, landscape architect, horticulturalist. So in other words, even though you have a general contractor or even an architect coming in to do work, 
loop in. And, and you're not planning on touching the landscape. You may want to loop in your landscape right. professional to just be a part of the conversation. Right. It'd be, you know, I have like multiple doctors. And so like letting one doctor know if my eye health is, is poor, it might be due to other parts of my physical health. And so nothing happens in a vacuum. And one doctor may not be aware <laughs> of what's going on. So even if it doesn't seem like, oh, that's not a big deal. We're just kind of our house painted. The living plants, even though they can appear like they're very resilient, just to something as simple that happens all the time is a painting tarp going over a hedge or a, a rhododendron or a holly. Imagine on a very hot day, within minutes or definitely hours, that area underneath that painting tarp is so hot, the plant, it's going to kill the plant or do serious damage. And I mean, other things that'll happen is power washing, where there's, let's say, bleach or another detergent. And so that can ad- adversely affect plants. If there's going to be construction and plants need to be removed, in some cases, of a high value plant could be transplanted in advance. In other cases, the cost to do so, it might not be worth it you know, for that, but have a conversation in advance. Great. Well, that's all the time we have for today, but we certainly look forward to doing future episodes on listener questions. We certainly thank everyone who contributed to today's episode. We look forward to our next topic, <laughs> our next full-length topic next week. We hope that you get to spend some time in your landscape soon. Anything else before we go? Well, are there any, I know you, you haven't do planning. Are there teasers for the listeners of, of episodes in the queue? Well, like I said, we're going to probably focus on that landscape calendar sometime soon, since that's a big sort of overarching theme. And uh, there's some more in the works. Um, we hope you tune in to, to find out. Beautiful. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.